Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Uh, it is wonderful to see you. My name is Liam, and on behalf of Christchurch London, it is an absolute privilege to wish you a very, very happy 10th of December. It's, <laughs> Christmas is still 15 days away. I've got to keep up this festive smile for over a fortnight. It may well kill me. I, uh, I don't know whether you feel that Christmas is here already, fast approaching, or still ages away. As I've talked to people, I've realized that the extent to which you think Christmas is very close or very distant depends very much on how organized you are. So just to give me an idea of who is in the room, little show of hands, who here has done all of their Christmas shopping? Wow. A few. Look around, people. These people are not normal. <laughs> you see, people like you make me really suspicious because... If you are that organized about this, it makes me think, what on earth are you plotting? It's either you are freakishly organized or you just not put in enough thought. Just some point in the summer you thought, yeah, first thing I've seen, that'll do. <laughs> but at the other end of the spectrum, um, how many of you have done none of your Christmas shopping? Wow, loads of you. Guys, that's just irresponsible. What are you... Do you not love your family or something? You just, just 10 days' time, you'll suddenly panic by and go, ah, oh, 25 Amazon vouchers, bosh. That's, that's not the way to do Christmas. There's a happy middle ground. So uh, show of hands, how many of you here are planning to complete your shopping during my talk? <laughs> no hands, but uh, I will tell. I'll see the glows on your faces as we're going kill the Wi-Fi. We're not having that. Uh, it's, I, I love Christmas, and I am somewhere in that middle ground. I feel like it's fast approaching. I feel like it's still a little bit away, but I am starting to feel some of that Christmassy magic. Uh, if I were to ask you what makes Christmas feel magical to you, I imagine that we would have hundreds of different answers in a room like this. It's undeniably a magical time. But for some of us, uh, the magic of Christmas, if we were to sum it up in one thing, it might be a flavor, a sound a sight, an experience. For me and my family growing up, if I were to sum up the magic of Christmas in one thing, it would be this. Can you feel the magic? <laughs> like this, if you don't know, is a wall timer. And you plug them into the wall, and you set a time, and you plug devices into them, and then at particular times of the day, it turns the device on. At other times of the day, it turns them off. That is the magic of Christmas to me. In my house growing up, we would get these out twice a year. Once in the summer, where we would plug the lights into them and they would turn on and off in order to convince would-be burglars that we were not actually away on holiday. Did, did other families do that as well? Yeah, a few. It's like a really disappointing low-budget version of Home Alone, to be honest. I wanted falling anvils and flamethrowers, and my dad was like, no, a five-pound plug from Argos will do. It's not really movie-worthy. But the second time of year we would get these out would be Christmas, and we would plug all the lights from around the tree into these, and on a particular time of the day, they would turn on. A particular time of day, they would turn off. Now, you might think, that doesn't sound very magical. That sounds pretty boring and functional. But I tell you, there is nothing more magical if, as well as one of these, you also have a young sister who has no idea these exist. <laughs> True story, for years I convinced her I operated our Christmas tree lights with the power of my mind. It was, it's, it's just the most amazing thing. We'd be sitting there, my favorite thing of the year, like forget everything else, turkey presents, that's what, this was Christmas for me. We would sit there, we'd be playing board games and, uh, and I'd suddenly just stop the family and go, oh hang on just a second, I am um, 
the lights had come on and a tiny mind was blown. It was just perfect. We'd be getting ready for bed. I'd just say, oh, hang on. I just got to uh, like that. And she'd be, wow, it's incredible. And for years, we did this every single year. I was dreading the day she would go to school and some obnoxious kid would be like, well, I'm mummy and daddy say that mind control lights don't really exist. And it would just destroy everything I'd worked so hard to build. In fact, she is 28 years old and I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast because it will ruin Christmas for my family. But uh, for me, that, that's a joke. She knows now. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I, really don't know, I really hope she doesn't listen to the podcast now. But for me, this, or rather what this represents, is something inherent to the Christmas message. Because I think the idea of light breaking into darkness is inextricably linked to the message of Christmas. I think it's no coincidence that light plays such a big part of how we celebrate Christmas. Just think about when Christmas starts for Londoners. I mean, we've ascertained for some of you, it starts in June when you freakishly go and buy your presents. But for most of us, it starts at that moment when thousands of us flock to watch some Z-list celebrity push a button and 300,000 lights come on in Regent Street or 750,000 in Oxford Street. This signifies the beginning of the Christmas period, or at least the shopping for Christmas period. For many people, the moment they start thinking about Christmas or just inextricably linked to Christmas is this idea of light breaking in to darkness. It's what we've been singing about and celebrating today through all the carols, through all the readings, through all the decoration and lights, this idea of light breaking in. We heard that famous Christmas reading earlier from Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And this was from a text that was written seven centuries before the coming of Jesus. And it expressed many of the longings and hopes and dreams that God's people had for God to break into the darkness of their world. And from the earliest days of Christianity, Christians have believed that this ancient longing, this ancient verse was fulfilled through the one who, as Olivia so beautifully read at the beginning. And I made a mistake with that, starting with the cutest thing. Like, I can't top that. But she just so beautifully read this reading about the one who was life and light, who came into the world to show us the way back to God. Jesus is the answer to the longing of Isaiah 9. Light has broken in. And Christmas is not just an abstract idea, it is linked to a historic event which took place at a particular time in history when arguably the world was at its absolute darkest. And so if we are to understand what it means for Christmas light to break into darkness, I think we need to understand a bit of the world of the time of the first Christmas. So if you'll indulge me on a few geeky facts, I'll only keep you a couple of minutes. This is what the world was like at the time of Christmas. Essentially, the world was ruled by the Roman Empire. In fact, the ancient historian Diodorus said that the boundaries of the empire are equal to the boundaries of the earth. Rome dominated the entire globe. And essentially, the world was ruled by one person, Caesar Augustus. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And in 44 BC, Julius Caesar was assassinated. And legend had it that for a week, a comet shone in the sky above. The ancient historian Suetonius said that people looked at this comet and assumed it must have been the soul of Julius Caesar ascending into the heavens, and they believed this meant that maybe he had become a god. So in 42 BC, the Senate officially declared that Julius Caesar was to be known as Divi Julius, that is divine Julius, and that his son, Caesar Augustus, was to be known as Divus Filius, the son of God. 
And in the Roman Empire, they had these celebrations when a new emperor, when a new ruler came into power, when he arrived. They called it an Adventus ceremony. It's where we get the word Advent from. from. And right across the world, people would celebrate this new emperor, and they would do so in all sorts of ways. The artists and poets would create things that honored their emperor. They'd have these calendars, and you'd open the doors, and they'd have chocolate coins with the face of Caesar. This is not true. I'm just seeing if you're actually paying attention. But they would actually have coins with his face on, but they were more like this, only not that size. That clearly wouldn't fit in a vending machine. But on the back of it, you'd have... This comet and the words Divus Julius, Divine Julius. On the other side, you have this picture of Caesar Augustus cementing the idea that he was the son of God. And the great thing about coins is that everyone needs coins. I mean, we don't. We go contactless. But in this day, you would have coins, and they would be like the viral marketing campaign of the day because coins would just pass from person to person and trader to trader and go right across the world carrying this message that your emperor, Caesar Augustus, is the son of God. God. And so right throughout the Roman Empire, people would hold in their pockets and in their hands these things that spoke about the fact that the Son of God was here. The Savior had arrived. The poets celebrated Augustus. Virgil wrote these words about him. This is the man the one who has been promised again and again, the turning point of the ages has come. He will annihilate the evil of the past and free the people from unceasing fear. He will establish a universal empire of peace and lead in the golden age for the blessing of a renewed humanity. That's right there. That's the first century Christmas number one. <laughs> but people would sing and celebrate and read these words right across the world. And in every town and every city, people would literally bow the knee to statues of Caesar and declare Caesar is Lord. Salvation can be found in no one else save Augustus, and there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Now, this doesn't sound much like a dark period. The Son of God has come. He's come to bring healing and freedom from fear, from pain, from death. Actually, the period under Augustus' rule was known as Pax Romana, the era of Roman peace, and that sounds great. That sounds wonderful. That sounds worth celebrating. Except that when you probed it a little bit, you found that it wasn't all it promised to be. You see, Roman peace wasn't the absence of war. Roman peace was brought about through oppression and through bloodthirsty means, oppressing anyone who dared to stand up uh, in the way of Caesar Augustus. And so there are countless tales of the way that people were oppressed right across the Roman world. Taxation was at an all-time high. People would be taxed between 50 and 90% of their income. Many of them lost their houses, their land, and had to leave from their hometowns as a result. There are countless accounts of bloodthirsty wars all in the name of peace, which I won't read because it's Christmas. <laughs> but uh, just one example, I mean, Germanicus, the governor of Syria, he was renowned for his violence during this period. In fact, in 4 AD, just three and a half miles from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, he crushed a Jewish revolt and executed 2,000 people in the name of peace. Jesus may possibly even have seen that in his childhood. This is just one example of many. This was anything but a peaceful time. As Isaiah said, and I think he was right, the people were walking in darkness. Now, we don't often talk or sing or celebrate this at Christmas, but I think understanding something of the darkness of the world of the first Christmas helps us to understand the impact of the light breaking in. And in a strange kind of way, I find that it crosses the divide from this ancient story to our world because undeniably we look around this world today and there is plenty of darkness. 
And I think that many of us, if not all of us, live with the same longings and hopes and dreams and desires that people did in the first century. We long for hope and healing and salvation and peace. We long for light to break in. Let me illustrate this. I watched a documentary a few weeks ago called Skyladder. I don't know if anyone has seen it. It's on Netflix. It's absolutely brilliant. Do check it out. Not now, later. But it's great. It's really worth watching. And it's about the contemporary Chinese artist Sai Guo Chang, who, whose particular medium is using gunpowder in his art. And he starts off by uh, showing some work that he did where he basically began by mixing gunpowder and paint together and then setting it alight and causing the explosions to just create these dramatic patterns on canvas. But as his mastery of the art grew, his canvas stopped being literal canvas and started being the sky. And he began doing these enormous explosion projects where he would fill the sky with smoke and fire and light. And he did works for the Beijing Olympics and Remembrance Day celebrations all around the world. A remarkable, remarkable remarkable artist. And at the beginning of the documentary, he talks about his fascination with gunpowder. And he says that the people who first discovered it were actually looking for an elixir that would give them immortality. And what they found in the process was something that has changed the, the course of history for good and for bad. But that sense of a longing for immortality underpins, I think, all of his work, not least the focus of the documentary, his Sky Ladder Project. And he talks about two things that particularly inspired the project. The first is this. He showed a picture of the side of this religious building. If I can have the next slide up. Here it is. Uh, he saw this building, and on it is a ladder climbing into the heavens. And up the ladder are various statues who are trying to get closer to God. He said the idea fascinated him, the idea of climbing up to be nearer to God. He couldn't shake it from his mind. The second thing that inspired him was this. In 1969, he, along with the rest of the world, was fascinated by the space mission that led to the moon landing. And he felt this real excitement at seeing mankind go further than they'd ever gone before, but also a real sadness because he realized that he would never be able to make that journey himself. And so at least in his mind, he started to tie these ideas together and think, how could I create a ladder that would be like me reaching into the heavens? And for decades, the idea just dwelled in his mind. He longed to create this artwork. He said this, I am exploring a connection to an unseen power. I want to connect the earth to the universe. The purpose of this ladder wouldn't be for me to go into space. It would be to encourage a back and forth, a dialogue. For decades, he lived with this dream and wrestled with how to turn it into a reality. He had three failed attempts. And then on the 15th of June, 2015, he and a team of workers gathered in a small harbor town in China. They floated a huge white balloon filled with 6,200 cubic meters of helium into the air over the harbor. Attached to the bottom of the balloon was a ladder 500 meters long and coated with gunpowder and gold fireworks. At 4.49 a.m., they lit the fuse, and they stood back, and they watched. And for the next two and a half minutes, this ladder of light and fire just climbed up into the skies, half a kilometer towards the heavens. And it's such a moving moment in the documentary where all these people who've been really reserved the whole time are suddenly weeping at seeing this decades-old dream realized. And the reason why I think it is such a powerful artwork and a powerful idea is because it taps into longings that all of us have. I think all of us long for something greater than this world can offer. 
We all long to explore and innovate and create. We long for immortality and our hearts break when we see a world full of pain. I think all of us, it may be in different words, long for what Sai says when he says we long to connect with an unseen power to create a ladder of light that will transcend the darkness of our world. We long All of us, I think, long for peace and fullness and hope and healing and joy and light. And the message of Christmas is that we do not long in vain because God longs for the same things for which we long. He longs to connect heaven and earth, to open a dialogue. But rather than demanding that we climb the ladder to him, at Christmas, God descends the ladder to us and light breaks in. Still got it. Isaiah said the people walking in darkness had seen a great light. To be honest, it wasn't actually all that great. It was a tiny flickering flame. Not great like we would measure greatness. It was a baby born in a backwater town. Jesus wasn't famous, he wasn't rich, he wasn't powerful, his parents weren't well known. He was just a vulnerable baby. And yet over years, the tiny flickering flame of his life just began to grow and spread and spread and spread like wildfire throughout the ancient world until within a generation, thousands of people who had bowed the knee to Caesar and called him their Lord and their Savior, the true Son of God, now bowed the knee to Jesus, a peasant carpenter from Nazareth. 2,000 years on, 14 billion people consider and have considered him their Lord and Savior. Time is literally divided around his birth before and after BC and AD. Jesus has changed everything. Over the next couple of weeks, we will sing many songs and celebrate many rituals all about Jesus and not one about Caesar Augustus. Jesus has changed everything and Caesar is a salad and a brand of dog food. The message of Christmas is that light has come. Light has broken in. Because as Isaiah said, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And his kingdom is utterly unlike the kingdom of Rome. For one thing, The king of Jesus' kingdom was not a guy who died and then sort of ascended into heaven and maybe became a god. Rather, he was God, the true son of God who descended from heaven and became man. His kingdom is totally unlike the kingdom of Rome. Rather than being a kingdom based on oppression and violence, Jesus' kingdom is one of peace and self-giving love. And we see this, I think, most clearly if we fast forward to Easter. Where at the cross, Jesus himself became the victim of Roman darkness. It's like in that moment, all of the darkness of the world was focused on one place and the light of the world was just snuffed out. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. And the Bible speaks about a second Adventus, a second coming of Jesus, where he will return to make all things new, ridding this world of every scrap of darkness, suffering, sin, pain, and death. 
The message of Christmas is that darkness will not prevail. Light will have the victory. And then when Jesus returns, as Isaiah said, we will arise and shine for our light has come. The Lord will be our everlasting light and our days of sorrow will end. Now, those are big claims, I know. (laughs) Rushed over very quickly. And I wish that I had more time to unpack them with you today. But if nothing else, I hope that I have shown you that the claims of Christmas really deserve to be wrestled with. Because if even half of what I have said today is true, and I happen to think more than half of it is true, if even half of it is true, it changes everything. And it's really worth thinking about. And if you would like to think further about the claims of Christmas and the claims of Christ, then we would love to help you do that. In the new year, we'll be running a course called Alpha. We'll hear more about it later in the service. But it's an opportunity to consider some of the questions and claims of Christ and of Christianity. It's an eight-week course. And to put it in perspective, if you were to go on that course, you would spend a maximum of 22 hours thinking about the claims of Christ. 22 hours. That's less than a day. And if Jesus really is the most important, most influential person who has ever lived, if he really has changed everything, don't you think it's worth less than one day of your life to explore the claims about him? I would highly recommend that course. And even if you go on it and you enjoy the 22 hours and you decide it's not for you, I think you will benefit from looking at facts about the greatest man who has ever lived and considering them for yourself. Just one more thought before I close. And it's this. We live in the in-between, between two advents, between Jesus' birth at Christmas and his second coming when he returns to make all things new. And it's one thing to claim that the light has come, and it's another to say that the light will come again. Well, what about right now? When there is undeniably darkness in this world, where does the light come now? How does the light break into the darkness today? How is Christmas still relevant now? Where does the light come from? Well, Jesus says this comes from you, and it comes from me. It comes, it comes from us. See, Jesus talking to his disciples, he said this, you are the light of the world. When men and women and communities decide to live lives modeled on the self-giving love of Jesus rather than the way of Rome, it's like the light of God fills us and through us fills the world. You are the light of the world. You know how this world is going to get filled with light in advance of Jesus coming back? The world will get filled with light now if the world gets filled with people who are filled with light now. You are the light of the world if the light lives within you. And so the message of Christmas is that the light has come and the light will come again. But the invitation or the challenge of Christmas is that we can live as the light now, serving the world as Christ himself did. And you might not feel like the light of the world. I don't feel like the light of the world. I feel like a flickering candle, not even a candle. I feel like a match, a flickering match, nothing more. But that's how Christmas began, with a tiny flame, a baby in a backwater town, and then it spread and it spread and it spread. And the invitation, the challenge of Christmas is that if we dare to give just the tiny, flickering, fragile match of our lives over to God, it can get caught up in his eternal flame, his project of bringing light to all this world. So the message of Christmas is the light has come. The invitation of Christmas is that you can be filled with his light and you can be an instrument for bringing his light all across this world. In a moment, the band are going to play a song for us. 
And I'd like us to use this as a moment for personal reflection. I don't know where you're at in terms of Christmas, in terms of any of the things we've talked about today. But why not just take this moment to think about your world? Where are there areas of darkness in your world where you could do with seeing light? If you're a dreamer, as they play, as they sing, why not dream of what it would look like in 2018 for some light to break into your world, to your community, to your family, to your workplace, to areas where you come face to face with darkness? And if you are a prayer, why not use this as a moment to pray? God, I don't feel like the light of the world. I feel like a flickering match. But if you can use this match for your glory, I give myself to you. Ladies and gentlemen, I really thank you for listening. And I do wish you a very, very Merry Christmas. And I wonder, just as I close, if you will humor me and raise your fingers and join me on the count of three. Three, two, one.